0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and a second special episode broadcast from multiple home offices here in the time of COVID-19. This conversation is with Doug Bibby. Our prior special episode was an interview with Spencer Levy, the lead strategist and research head for CBRE, where we talked about the immediate and long-term impacts of COVID across the real estate spectrum. This conversation with Doug is, of course, focused on just the apartment sector, And again, thinking through the immediate impact, which is huge on renters, owners and apartment workers, as well as how the crisis might change some of our responses to the long term challenges affecting the apartment business and indeed our country's overall housing ecosystem, particularly around issues like homelessness, affordable housing, rent control, nimbyism and the overall lack of supply. That's a lot to unpack, but we touch on all these points in the conversation. Doug is someone who I've known warmly for a long time. He's someone who transcends the genre. He not so much leads a trade association as he's found ways to truly lead the industry. And In this conversation, you'll hear echoes of other interviews from Leading Voices where we unwrap the very significant evolution in the apartment industry over the past two decades. You'll hear similar notes in our upcoming episode with Leonard Wood, the founder of Wood Partners, and not coincidentally, a former chairman of NMHC. I hope that you're coping well in business, in your family, in your community, or should I say communities, and within yourself during the COVID lockdown. We're all dealing with this in our own ways. It will last longer than we hope until there's a true cure, and it will have ripple effects and changes in culture and behavior that will persist for many, many years. I've had the blessing of being five weeks of actually sitting still with my daughter Callie and my wife, Diane. Either Diane or I've been on an airplane at least every other week for the 30 years of our relationship. So this is a new thing. Callie's been nonstop on Zoom for Graduate City Planning School at UC Berkeley. So we're all getting to experience her learnings in real estate from a different proximity. So best wishes to all of you in this mess. Keep listening to podcasts even in your new rhythm. Feel free to get in touch with me at Matt at TerraSearchPartners or via our LinkedIn post for Leading Voices or rate us on iTunes and definitely pass this episode on to a friend. Now on to the conversation with Doug Bibby. By the way, we jump right into it. Do you find that you're working harder, more, and with more crisis than like ever before?
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely, unquestionably. Just every single day, I'm doing media interviews, I'm doing webinars, I'm, you know, it's, um, and then dealing with staff issues, and my staff are just running as hard as they can possibly run, and some of them too hard, and, you know, we're in a service, same as you, we're in a service business, and, you know, we're our clients are, are needing and demanding service, and so we're, you know, we're just running as hard as we possibly can run right now. And uh, everybody's just strung out and tired. I've just told them last Friday, I'm going to tell them this Friday, turn the damn phone off over the weekend. And I mean, you know, turn your iPhone off is what I mean. Take a deep breath, go for a walk, go for a run, ride a bike, do something. But just get away for a little bit. It's true. It's
0: interesting because I think in some ways you take on the industry in a way that you've never had to do before.
1: Right. 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 I mean, if you think back to 2008-2009 recession, I mean, we had financial risk that really really toppled the system. And so back then, you had the apartment industry had lost so many residents to home ownership. Right. and we hadn't, we hadn't overdeveloped. We'd lost residents, our vacancies were up. And then when the proverbial hit the fan, our guys were not over leveraged. They hadn't overbuilt. And then they took advantage of when rates plummeted, they then refinanced and got 10 year debt at really, really good rates. And then we came screaming out of the gates this time. And, but it took time for that recession. had a long tail and a long, you know, long tail for recovery. Right. This has hit like an explosion. If you look at 17 million people have applied for unemployment insurance, the peak of the two 2000- thousand. Eight uh, uh, two thousand nine recession was seven million, so we're already ten million over that peak, and it is only going to grow. So it it is a very very different phenomenon, and 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 all of my members are on the front lines because all of their residents are back living there twenty four seven in their units.
0: Exactly right. Yeah, you what's know, funny, we have clients in New York, and the clients in New York have both office buildings and apartment buildings, and they're. Office buildings are fully rented, but maybe 3% occupied, and their apartments are now 100% occupied 24-7, which they've never been set up to do.
1: Yeah, and so what the office people are doing is saying, hey, I'm bored, let's go out and do something, play golf or whatever, and our guys are just strung out. Because as I said, they're unlike you know the healthcare workers are obviously the first front line that we have and they're doing an amazing job with limited the resources I might add as you know mm-hmm. and then um, our our guys are right behind them right at the stress level so
0: and it's personal for everybody we may start our conversation with how is it personal for you but in a second but also it's you know everyone lives in a home everyone is at home we're all together in that and renters are losing their income and your people are on the front lines, almost like healthcare workers, while some of the rest of us, you know, get to do this from home. So it's a whole different yeah. dynamic of risk and and not reward. There's no reward anywhere, but there's a whole lot of risk. Yeah,
1: inside. I know. I know. Absolutely right. Yeah.
0: So let's start the conversation, Doug. And let me welcome you to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm thrilled to have you in the conversation. I've wanted to for some time, but now it's kind of essential to talk to someone who understands the broader view of what's going on given the coronavirus pandemic and the multifamily world and the effects across the business from investments, which is the longer term issue. And let's not think about investments and transactions right away as much as we might on operations, renters, our populations, our workers and all the rest of it. But there's long term issues that you and I've been involved with together that we'll talk about. And then all this immediate stuff that makes this an extremely timely conversation. So thank you for joining us.
1: It is my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And Doug, because the, the virus is so personal to everybody, just, a you know, where are you sitting and how long have you been there? And have you <laughs> shaved, I guess?
1: I, I am home. I'm, I actually was exposed to someone who tested positive, in our office. And so I immediately went home and self quarantined for 14 days. And that was, I got three weeks ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. I lost track of what day it is. I don't even know what day of the week it is most of the time, but it does hit home with you. I lost my best friend from college to, to this virus. And he was suffering from some other ailments, but this COVID-19 finished him off. And then I just lost my favorite cousin's uh, husband. And we've had, I think, six or seven friends who um, have been sick right. uh, with the virus. All of them were on planes, by the way. So I, I think I'm sorry for the airline industry, but people should stay off planes. Um, they're, they're just uh, petri dishes for problems. But, you know, all is well. Uh, I actually have a um, tennis group and mm-hmm. we go out and we keep respectful distance from each other and we touch rackets. We don't slap hands or shake hands or anything. And we can play tennis once or twice a week.
2: Good for you. And
1: that keeps my sanity because, you know, I'm on calls literally all day long, right. all day long, seven days a week, you know, and I'm if I'm not doing that, I'm answering emails or, you know, aren't uh, doing webinars. Right. So yeah, it's just a crazy time. It's just really unprecedented.
0: Yeah, it is. And Doug, so you run the National Multifamily Housing Council and you have for 20 some odd years. almost 20 so almost 20 some odd years it feels like 30 but maybe (laughs) but never before has the head of a trade association or this trade association been as central to the business it feels like to me this is a fundamental change and this crisis really brings that out
1: yeah and i I think the advantage i bring to the table is i've been through cycles before and i've been through difficult times all different kinds in the mid 80s and the, you know, in the early 90s and then the recession of 2001 and then 2008, 2009 and all this. So, I mean, you know, you don't have an upcycle all the time. And, and I, I have a couple of advantages. I've been through the cycles. I know the housing finance business quite well. Right. And I've been at this for 19 years now and, and change with the uh, with the council. So. I think I'm in a pretty good position to be helpful.
0: So talk about what kind of the immediate term, what this means for the apartment industry, what it means for workers, what it means for renters and fictions and occupancy and delinquency. What does all that mean right now? A little bit, what are you guys doing about it, but talk about the meaning and then how's the industry responding?
1: Let's let's just start there with the pain is, is most prevalent, obviously with, with the renters. And, you know, our members tend to be more in the market rate space, although many of them also are renting in the, in the B space, if you will, and not necessarily in the subsidized uh, housing business. But the renters are under, under great stress because we've had 17 million people apply for unemployment insurance. The previous peak was during the 2008-2009 recession of 7 million. So 17 versus 7, and the 17 is only going to grow. And These are people who um, are on the, in the gig economy, they're on commissions, they're on hourly wages, they're you know they are going to feel the stress of meeting their rents. The good news is that in the early first half of April, particularly in the um, market rate space, most of the members that I've talked to are in very, very strong position. The REITs are. In the mid '90s, um, other really top-notch owner operators are there with them.
0: In the mid '90s, of uh, percentage occupancy.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, okay. I, I'm, I'm, when I speak shorthand, make sure you, you, you give me a <laughs> <laughs> But you know where the pain is being felt is in the C space right now, and that those are the people that I mentioned earlier in the gig economy and on commissions and hourly wages and so on. They may be um, supporting the local economy and. Millions of small businesses have had to shudder because of this. And that's the big difference between now and 2008, 2009, when you had the financial shock. But, you know, we didn't feel it as strongly uh, in the rental business, other than we lost a lot of residents to speculative home ownership. Mm -hmm. But this time around, it's happened so fast that we're going to feel it a lot faster. So while we had pretty darn good results in April, we're going to find it's going to be more difficult in May and in June and, and, and however long this thing goes. Right. So the second level of pain is that the staff at the apartment communities across the country are on duty for a 20, 24-7 clientele because 93% of the U.S. population is sheltering in place. That means that everybody in the apartment buildings is in their unit. Right. Right. And and we've got to keep those buildings sanitized and supplied and and serviced. So if the rental income drops off, the owners are going to have to make some tough choices and they're going to have to cut payroll. Don't forget that those owners are typically smaller in the main. You can look at the NMHC group and say, boy, they're all fat cat, big shots. Most of the owners of apartment communities in the United States are smaller businesses. That's right. And like, so, for example... Forty-one percent of the total apartment stock; those are buildings with five units or more. Forty-one percent have fifty or fewer units in their buildings. So these are not institutionally owned. They right. typically won't have Fannie and Freddie debt on them. But guess what? They have mortgages. They have taxes and, and insurance. They have utilities to pay. They've got their payroll, and they've got somebody they're paying the debt service to. So if you start lowering their rent, they're already operating on a very thin margin. And then you start lowering their rent's uh, income, right. the stress will be felt first there. You know, the REITs can tap the, the public markets. Um, they could hang on longer. But even there, you start taking a 10% haircut in, in rental income each month and that, it gets painful real quickly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we're seeing uh, the threat of a cascading effect in our business because then you say, okay, the and, and guess what? One more thing. I forgot to. A fairly substantial number of apartment units are owned by pension funds. You know, think of your state of Calsters and CalPERS. Those are not fat cats who are the pensioners. Those are teachers and and other workers and police and firefighters in, in their communities. And so these pension funds and 401ks own apartments. So if you have a, you know, and God forbid we have these renter strikes happen, but if the renter strikes, people don't even think through what they're doing. Because they think they're gonna hit the fat cat landlord and what they're gonna do is take people like themselves out of work and they're gonna cut into the pensions of people like them who are depending on those pensions. They don't think through who owns apartments right. and how and how the rental income flows. And so I um, and that's long winded answer to your question, but it had to be thorough because you, uh, you know, you had to look at those points.
0: It's an interesting one because we'll draw all kinds of distinctions here. One is between your members of NMHC and the rest of rental property owners, but let's put them all in the same bucket and we'll dispense with who your owners or your specific interest is. I don't think that matters as much here. The second thing you said, and I think it's really interesting, it was a point I was going to want to raise is in the long run, how do we, change or what is the view of landlord? And you put the word fat cat before landlord. I didn't, but it's in my mind too. And I think it's such a misnomer because the real landlord is the lender. The real landlord is the investor and the investor might be an S and P 500 index fund, or it might be the Calsters or CalPERS teachers and employees. And so this isn't fat court landlords making boatloads of money. Sometimes it is, but it's more likely you and me who somewhere behind the ownership of these properties
1: yeah i mean i i have owned a rental property in my life i know what a pain in the neck it was (laughs) to to, to deal you know the turnover in tenants and the the difference in quality of people who are renting and so on it's a hands-on business and it is as i said hugely fragmented and um you just put another little spin on it the nmhc top 50 that we publish and by the way that's been delayed this year Guess why? Yeah, yeah. The so that the top fifty owners of apartments in the United States have ten percent of the market. Ten mm-hmm. percent. If you tell me another industry sector where the top fifty have a ten percent share, it's hard to find. It's, so that really underscores that you know we've got a variety of people, and I do have to think about that whole community because otherwise policymakers are going to make some dumb decisions with the misunderstanding that it's the the Blackstones and the big institutional holders who are in the main dominating the ownership of the of the space, and they are not.
0: Mm-hmm. And then when you see failures of behavior, and I come back to that book Evicted, right? And the behaviors in that were not the people who are institutional owners at all whatsoever, although you all get tagged with the same thing.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, I don't want to get into Matthew Desmond and, and some of the flaws I see in his work, but there are... Bad owners out there, and um, they're not in my membership. I feel very certain about that. But there are people out there who I can't believe are still allowed to operate in certain communities across the country. I don't know why they haven't been shut down. And you read about them, and you think, you know, and here in Washington D.C., I keep reading about this one owner who who's got rats and mold and ceilings falling in, and so on, and right. then they still allowed to own and operate. And so that's a sidebar. But, you know, our members are very close to their residents, and I think they treat them with great respect universally.
0: Well, that that happens in the institutional business generally, a point we'll probably come back to. But talk a little bit more about those things that you have to be doing right now with the association, and then we'll get into some longer term issues and questions. And I know you just released the rent payment tracker online, and it's a great fanfare. What, what's that all about?
1: Well, let me let me start before the rent tracker, because several weeks ago, what we started to do was send out suggestions, talking points, strategies to our members to prepare them for, you know, the April rent. Mm -hmm. Because when this began to hit, the pandemic began to hit, the March payments had already been made. And what we sent out were suggestions for, um, you know, make sure you contact every single resident,
2: Mm -hmm. find
1: out their status, thank them for being, you know, renters with you, do they need assistance? If not, thank you and expect to see the rent uh, on the first or through the fifth of of the month. The second was really, okay, when you are at that pressure point with uh, the residents you have to help, what are the strategies that you can employ? What do you want to do? And some of them have forgiven a month's rent. Some of them allowed the security deposit to be used in whole or part. Some of them have structured once-a-week uh, payments, some have t- twice-a-month payments. Mm-hmm. Some have allowed them to pay at the end of the month rather than the first of the month.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's all been taking place. But we also realized when we were dealing with the CARES Act that if we don't have good data out there, the policymakers are just going to say, you know, prove it. Right. So we, in an unprecedented collaboration, I might add, brought together the top data providers in the business, the likes of MRI, and Entrada, Page Yardy, Resman and together they represent thirteen point four million units in a universe of twenty one million apartment units in the country. So mm-hmm. it's an enormous database. The good news is it's an enormous database that covers the, the all types of apartment communities and in all types of shapes and sizes and mm-hmm. locale. The bad news is that when you look at that and say um, as the first release point came out saying that you know sixty-nine percent paid on the first four days basically of the month of April, that's down 12 percentage points from a year ago. The headline is, oh my God, but it's nearly 70% paid on the first four days of the month. And what we'll see now over the course of the rest of this month is that number will grow. But what I, you know, I heard from certain people, well, that's not our those aren't our numbers because I had heard before we released this information from most of my members that they were tracking in the, at that time in the very, very early stages of April in the eighties, and then moving up into the 90% of residents paying on time. Mm -hmm. So what you'll see if you parse the data is that the, the pain is already being felt at the C property level, right? where I was hearing horror stories of 40 to 50% of residents paying. Uh, So typically My membership is not in that space. Right. You know, I do have members like Daryl Carter and Jonathan Rose and Bob Hart and Govon White and others who are doing really solid work in that B space. They're doing okay Mm -hmm. uh, so far. But it's really, the Rent Tracker was set up so that we can deal with the media in an intelligent way to try to get them to understand. Unfortunately, they started writing sensationalist headlines almost immediately. Right. And it discolored the debate a little bit. We're trying to come back around to help them understand what is actually happening out there.
0: Mm-hmm. It, let's talk for a minute about ABC and subsidized. just for a minute to distinguish between those parts of the marketplace. And I think the headline, Six months ago might have been the riskiest class in apartments were the A properties because it was overbuilt and B and C seemed really stable. We've never had a crisis in which B and C was the upside down part of the business.
1: Yeah, I mean, we saw spreads compressing between A's, B's and C's. Right. For that very reason is that we were delivering. And as you and I have talked about for, you know, for many, many years, um, the disincentives to produce affordable housing throughout the system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what most of our members were doing was delivering with the pencil out, Mm -hmm. which was at the higher end of the marketplace. And so, but what we're seeing today is, in fact, you know, that is flipped on its head. Right. The C property is under great stress right now. The Bs are doing okay. um, And the, the owner operators in the B space are loving on their residents and they're doing everything they possibly can to help them. And mm-hmm. the, at the C properties, it's almost like you're trying to stop the tide from coming in.
0: Right. And that's a
1: hard thing to do. So you're absolutely right. It, this has just flipped the script.
0: And it's also flipped the script. I'm guessing at this one, and this is less your members, but again, we're talking about the whole market of subsidized housing where like tax credit properties or people pay a percentage of income section eight, the government pays the percentage of income. So you're safe, but I'm um, worried about failures yeah. in that side of the business with companies particularly nonprofits but others who just aren't capitalized to ride any kind of storm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a threat. And also, I bless our government, but you wonder how efficient they can be in getting money out the door to people who really need it, businesses as well as individuals. Right. But isn't their forte, there, you know, the federal government is not is <laughs> not private business.
0: Right. So let's bounce around on subjects, and you, you covered it before a little bit, but about the site workers and your members, which would be the most professional, largest owners, so they have the ability to put structures in place to deal with this stuff, but the putting workers on the front line, shutting down the exercise facilities, shutting down the laundry rooms, which maybe you can't do, how are the larger owners, the more sophisticated owners responding to that and being able to pivot to deal with this issue?
1: Well, I mean, they're they're trying to make sure that their staffs don't get disadvantaged, that they're on Mm -hmm. full salary, that they're trying to have reasonable hours. Some of them have chosen to self-quarantine because they're terrified of getting the the virus. And so you're having Mm -hmm. to double shift some people. They're just trying to keep the morale up and you know when you're when you have a you know basically a hundred percent occupied building 24 seven the exposure risk goes up for your worker for your frontline workers um, and so they're doing everything they possibly can I think you may have seen what Camden did which was just remarkable uh, they put together a five million dollar rental relief fund and it was drained in 15 minutes
0: Wow no I did yeah say. I mean
1: Just think about that. And so they're all trying to, you know, Daryl Carter and his communities of of Avanath cut rents across the board, 10%. Mm -hmm. And then they called every person after the first few days of this month to thank them for paying rents. Some of them paid full rent, even with the 10% discount, and they had to credit their accounts. But I mean, there are lots of stories out there of really heroic stories of owner-operators doing the right thing. Mm
0: -hmm. It's interesting thinking of the different real estate property sectors. I think in all sectors of the business or many sectors of the business, your tenant, your customer, you're becoming a partner with your customers. I'm thinking in the retail business where, you know, and multifamily owners have some retail. So that's another related issue here. But, you know, you don't want that coffee shop to go out of business. You don't want them to go out of business and then have to release it to someone else in six months when the world comes back. So all of a sudden you're partners with your tenants, be they a commercial tenant or be they a residential renter.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I just worry about our ability to to bounce back from a social distancing perspective. I really do. I mean, I think if we bent the curve in every single market,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we don't know whether this will come back
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the fall. Mm-hmm. We don't know whether people will want to go to restaurants, theaters, ball games, museums, bars, you name it. And so we may find that, you know, we get the all green all go green sign and then restaurants reopen and specialty shops reopen and theaters reopen and, and then nobody comes. And, um, so to me, that's a little bit of a longer, more of a longer term worry, but I do worry about that.
0: Absolutely true. Well, you don't flip the switch and I'm not going to a ball game next week, even if they had a great one, I'm just world series tickets. Here you go, Matt. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Not going to happen, but until there is some kind of a cure or until there's a vaccine, Till it could be under control that way, then there's going to be caution even when they open up the, okay, you can yeah. go back to work. And yeah. Doug, talk, I don't know how above you are in this, but it just just a point to make is to talk about the different niches of a multifamily because both student housing, maybe they're shutting down school in the fall some places, and then seniors housing, even amplified risks. Comments on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are two huge risks. Um that our, our student housing members are confronting. And one is you heard that in certain jurisdictions, there's a construction moratorium. Mm-hmm. Um, and y- you, know, if you're rehabbing a, a student housing or you're, you're actually developing new ground up student housing, you need to have that ready to run. And by August, right. And the lease up period starts. And if you miss that, you are, you're up the Creek without a paddle. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the second thing is just the, the viability of some of these institutions, to whether they've already, this academic year, they can get through. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, it was already prepaid and blah, 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 but they're being asked in certain cases to forgive the last few months of, of payments. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also, everybody's wondering, are we going to have an academic year in the right. fall of 2020? On the senior side, I mean, my goodness, that has, I would not want to be my peer, David Schles right now in his world in, in the seniors housing, because they're, You're dealing with a fragile population to start with. Right. It's just there are pain points in every single type of housing that is out there.
0: There's no doubt. Now, let me give the flip side to this conversation and look out a year or two. And if we look out a year or two, and I've been, the the last podcast we did was with Spencer Levy, the chief strategist and research person from CBRE, and I was just the phone with some other, lots of business leaders, right? And they go through the sectors and they say which sectors over the next 10 years, even with COVID, are the sectors to bet on. First one now is industrial. So that one's clear and lowest risk uh, for some of the things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But multifamily still kind of long term. Very very rosy. It's a business to invest in, and it's a business that bounces back once we get through this crisis. Office, retail, hotel—much harder long term view. So the context of this multifamily is still the fundamentals are strong. We're going to come back to supply demand issues in a few minutes. But any comments of kind of placing the immediate crisis within the context of this still favorite asset class?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think that you know, for the past, up until last year. Multifamily was the favorite asset class really for almost 10 years. Yeah. And then industrial uh, just nosed ahead, I might add. Right. <laughs> and when I went did a study on a risk adjusted return basis. You know, multifamily has been the darling for the past 15 years. Right. And um, so, I talk to investors, and they look at retail and what the disintermediation has taken place in retail. They look at office and the disintermediation that's taken place,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not just driven by Amazon, I might add, but also by the cloud. So
2: mm-hmm. that
1: law firms now use the cloud, so they don't have law libraries anymore. So that you know, if, you're, I'm a, if I'm a office landlord and I'm not getting the same square footage from law firms anymore, right? And so in the hotel business, my God, they were in single digits. Of occupancy, you know, as an industry, yep. because of this, and and so I've always liked the fundamentals. And once investors, both here and internationally, began to understand our business better, they see that it's a very predictable return and a, a lower risk. Mm-hmm. So. I think we'll come out of this just fine, as you said, and I think we will continue to compete for the top spot with industrial for the foreseeable future.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Doug, I want to come back to COVID at the end of the conversation, but let's do a kind of a history talk and talk a little bit about the time that you've been for, I guess, 19 years since 2001 at NMHC. When you started, the apartment business was hugely different. Let me make a couple guesses at what this was. And leading voices, we've had a couple of these multifamily history conversations because I love them. But when you started, the modern REITs were like four or five years old. Apartments had just become an institutional-grade investment class for pension funds. Most apartment buildings didn't have a computer in the management office. And maybe the number of people who'd attended NMHC annual meeting, and I wish they were like this again, were, you know, six, seven, eight hundred seven, 800 people. Yeah. So then it's changed. <laughs> so yeah. talk, talk yeah. about that evolution. Talk about sophistication that's come into the business, how you've watched that, how it's changed, and what that means.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I came in, first of all, I I came in from 16 years at Fannie Mae as a senior officer there, but Mm -hmm. most of my focus was on the single-family and affordable challenges that we had in in the country and and, and what we were working on at Fannie. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a great understanding of multifamily housing to start with, but when I came in, I found that, you know, Rentership was looked at as sort of a way station for homeownership, and and it was for poor people or it was for people just waiting to get into their first homeownership situation. Right. We'd be just beginning to see renters by choice, and we began to talk about that. Mm -hmm. People still didn't have an appreciation for what the asset class was all about. I would talk to investors, and they would say, uh, particularly the international investors, and they would say, we don't like you because you have to reprice your product every year. And I said, precisely. Exactly. Yeah, we are resetting our rents in almost all cases going up. So when you have an office building and you get a 50% tenant go belly up or leave or whatever, you are you got a big fat hole in your building. Mm-hmm. And I said, so we began to build an understanding of the institutional quality. But when I came in, there was like a 250 or 300 basis point premium put on, on investing in multifamily over office and retail. Now, think about that today. You talk about flipping the script. That script has flipped totally. Mm-hmm. It is much riskier to invest in office and retail today versus multifamily. And then the apartments themselves, I mean, um, you know, I used to, I came in and I said, why, why can't I take a virtual tour of an apartment? Why can't I pull this up on my screen, see the neighborhood, tour the building? Why can't I go in and, and if I don't like the configuration, change the walls around? And I, you know, I was, you know, and so part of my vision, you know, this is back in 2001, part of it's come true. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the other part will come true and so we were just beta testing the first revenue management systems Um, the software industry was just getting off the ground and we would have owner only meetings at the uh, what became the optech conference it started as the tech conference Mm -hmm. because the focus was just on you know how far behind tech was in our business and then it it morphed into optech as it got more sophisticated but we would have in the early days, when Yardi and RealPage and others were, were, you know, out there in the forefront, beta testing systems and so on and applications, we would have owners-only meetings, and you know, they would all be in there screaming about, you know, they can't do this, they can't integrate, we can't talk across platforms, you know, and all the frustrations with that. So we began to build the understanding of what a professionally managed mm-hmm. uh, apartment community is all about. We began to build an understanding that there are renters out there who want to rent by choice. As the millennials began to really start to move into the marketplace, they're very comfortable renting everything,
2: mm-hmm. whether
1: it's a wedding dress or a car or you know or an apartment or whatever it is. Got, their ownership is vastly different, and I'm I must say they're a heck of a lot smarter. When I look in my attic and I look in my garage and I look, get out know, all the crap <laughs> I've accumulated over my my lifetime. They're a heck of a lot smarter. I will tell you that when I my wife and I left for me to start grad school, we took everything we owned in the car. Right. I could not put the contents of our bathroom of course. in a car. <laughs> Half of today. what
0: was in the car was your record collection and your speakers, <laughs> probably. That was my car. Right.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my system. <laughs> exactly. The important things. Right. So uh, and then I want to give the reads a lot of credit, the EQRs and the Camden's and others who were risk takers and were investors in UDR, and at the time, Archstone, investors in um, new technologies and taking chances and implementing new things, their transparency made a big difference. While while the risks are big in our business, Mm -hmm. there's a part of the business where we're just kind of followers, if you know what I mean.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. The risks are huge and can be in multifamily, just in terms of bearing the risk, the financial risk. But in taking risks of implementing new systems and things like that, or changing the construction process. We we, we can get into later if you want to, those we've been so far behind. So, you know, we've, we've had to pull along the industry to begin to adopt new features, new techniques, new, you know, new systems and such.
0: Yeah. And let's come back to what you just said about the REITs, because I'd make a suggestion. And again, we've heard this discussed in the podcast before, but in one of my podcast conversations or interviews with a friend in the business, he said, the real change This is an Avalon guy. He said the real change in the business came from when every single asset we owned was a separate partnership to, we owned it all together. And we owned it all together as one, you know, as a group of assets that we owned for a long term hold period. And then we looked at it as a balance sheet and we looked at it as one operating company. And all of a sudden that we could then invest in operations. So I will guess that the investment that Avalon and you've named them all, right? So Camden, EQR, UDR, and the others, that the investment they were able to put into an operating platform and then the very large property management firms now, you know, new ones like Graystar, not new, but that that level of attention and ability to invest in operations and technology has transformed the business.
1: Absolutely. And think about it if it had been the other way around. Think mm-hmm. about it if it, it had been five or six private firms that did all the innovation and the, and the risk taking with new technologies and so on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And your inability to know what they've done. Mm-hmm. But with the REITs, because of their of their need to be transparent to their investor community and the analyst community,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that really gave confidence to everybody else that they could do it too. So I really, I do want to give them, and it was the Bryce Blairs at Avalon Bay and the Doug Crocker's at EQR and yeah. Toomey at UDR and, you know, and, and Rick and Keith at Camden and, and so on. I mean, all real leaders. And um, and then carried through to the Tim Naughtons and David Nethercuts and Eric Boltons and everybody else out there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Great leaders and innovators.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: let's think about a couple things around that, because I find the apartment business fascinating. And of all the real estate sectors, it feels like a business that has a bit more of a common element. I want to use the word family, but that's not the right word. But it's the most interconnected and networked of the businesses. And I actually think that NMHC is a trade group within that, you know, plays off of that really well. And I think of... And I'm a little bit kumbaya about this, so stick with me for a minute. But in a highly networked and relationship-oriented business, where some big players do have some major stakes, I think those groups tend to, over time, work together to improve how the industry operates, maybe towards collective best interest behavior. I don't know the right words. And I want to think of, this is, again, totally kumbaya with the arc of history bends towards justice. I think in this case, it bends towards kind of common elements, best practices and sophistication. And I think you've played a little role in that, but tell me if I'm just totally get
1: Goodbye, our smoke. It <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, no. Let me just reinforce that because I came out of Fannie Mae and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were just ferocious competitors. Mm-hmm. There was no collegiality, no sharing of information, no best practices back and forth and so on. It was, what is correctly known as a duopsony rather than a duopoly. But right. I came in and I was just stunned by how often these competitors will talk to each other. Right. And they may compete in one market and they may be partners in a second market. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And and they are willing to share best practices.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just been so eye-opening to me and so refreshing mm-hmm. to see the way that they are feel confident enough to To do that, and some of them can sometimes get a little proprietary and a little skittish about sharing. Mm-hmm. But Maine, most of them are, are certainly willing to go through what hasn't worked and what has worked, and and um, and talk about markets and talk about types of products.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes I won't tell stories out of school, but I will tell you there have been times when some of them have, have been in stress for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Others have come in to help them, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: whether it's with forbearance or whether it is with, you know, agreeing to to share a loss on a deal. I I can't tell you. I've heard those stories and I I just I just sit there with my mouth open because it's just so incredibly mature and Mm -hmm. (laughs) and refreshing to see that kind of behavior.
0: Well, when you take a longer term view of the industry, all of a sudden, you're, if your competitor fails because they look bad, then your industry looks bad. You don't want that to happen. Your risk may become those who play outside the playground, though, which we talked yes. about early in the conversation, because yeah. you can't control yes. it.
1: Yeah, I can't. We're
0: going to talk about long-term issues in a sec, but I am curious about kind of affect the coronavirus and your comment from before about, okay, don't get on an airplane, and my silly comment before about, missing the 1,000-person NMHC annual meeting, which is now like 10,000 people. What yes. happens to that? What is that I change?
1: Don't, you know, no, Matt, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I will tell you two things that have come out of this are that people are going to be more comfortable with virtual meetings. I think there will be less travel going forward. and The second thing that I really was almost the most dominant theme at last fall's OpTech conference that we had, by the way, we had 2,000 people at that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was this virtual leasing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I will tell you that while physical traffic is down, obviously, to zero practically,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: the leasing traffic is robust in certain markets and with certain operators. I've been on your associate, Allie, was mm-hmm. reminding me of how many webinars I've been on over the past several days. And, and each one of them, it seems to come up that they're leasing quite well remotely. and And you wonder then what's going to happen with the structure of leasing of the leasing office
2: mm-hmm.
1: in an apartment community going forward.
0: It's going to keep moving in that way because people are comfortable. If you're comfortable buying a pair of jeans that you think are going to fit your particular butt shape, then you could certainly lease an apartment over the Internet. (laughs) Yeah, I
2: would. You'd
1: think.
0: But Uh, it's interesting. I'll ask the question on this because in our business as recruiters, we're seeing this every day, which is, okay. well, who at what level will pull the trigger on an employee who they've met on Zoom, even with drinks on Zoom, you know, have a drink cocktail uh, yeah. as part of the hiring process, but will you let them into the inner circle based on that?
1: Yeah, I think you know it's going to cut both ways, Matt. But I, I think people are going to be so starved for personal contact. Yes. And even the young folks who heretofore have been happy to sit in their room or in the basement and just you know in front of their screen and play games and so on, they're going to be dying for personal contact. Mm-hmm. I've never seen So many people, I'm sure you see it in your community, too, out walking, running, biking, hiking, and families together, fathers with children, um, you know, whole families walking, biking, running. Just, you know, I think that will cut the other way. Mm -hmm. It's when we feel either through the benefits of a vaccine or whether we feel we've beaten this thing finally that I think people will return to that social contact that is so important to us. So yeah. uh, you know we we may see a downturn in what may be my final
2: mm-hmm.
1: annual meeting It may not uh, <laughs> next January and so much remains to be seen how we come out of this over the next 2 to 3 months Absolutely uh, true but yeah absolutely yeah. true
0: and by the time your annual meeting takes place. I don't think there's a cure or a vaccine, so that's going to be the following year that that part of it, although there will be future health crisis. So let's talk some long-term issues. So before the virus, you and I were spending some time together, and I know you think about this stuff, in terms of some headline issues in the apartment business and in the overall housing system in the U.S. And as I've been fond of saying, it's been the first time in my, I hate to say, 40-year career in, in the real estate world that housing has been a headline in the newspaper almost daily, although not today in the same way. And there are multiple issues. So let me just name a couple and then let's talk about them. So housing supply, big issue. Uh, NIMBYism, big issue. Homelessness, different issue. Dollars for housing subsidies, rent control. These are all Fundamental issues affecting housing in the U.S., and it's been big for multifamily and big for the reaction of and the reaction against the business. How do you sort through these? How do we begin a public discourse again after this immediate crisis around these issues? And might the collaboration around coronavirus in some ways change the dynamics of those discussions?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the very first. Item that someone brought up to me, and it's from your home state with Senator Weiner trying to promote denser right. apartment development around transportation nodes. I don't know now. People, what I'm hearing, and I don't believe it, but I, what I'm hearing is that we're going to have this great out-migration from the cities and everybody's going to want to go to the rural areas or more. You know, I don't believe that. I don't either. I don't buy it. I mean, they're, they're, the reason that the downtown urban environment has become so attractive is because it is so attractive. Yep. And it is, it is the European model. You don't go to London to go to the suburbs. You don't go to Paris to go to the suburbs. You don't go to Rome to go to the suburbs. And by God, the suburbs in Paris are awful. Mm-hmm. So the cities have a great appeal and they will come back. Um, and we're not going to have this humongous out migration, but you know, you, you mentioned a whole host of issues know. and, and I, I'll try to tackle them, but it remind me if I don't hit one. I have been increasingly appalled by the scope of homelessness going on, and I've been appalled at where it's happening. It, it isn't just in the major, you know, the major, major metros, but, I, you know, it's ugly in Salt Lake, and it's ugly in Denver, and it's ugly in, you know, San Francisco, and, it, and it's shameful with all of our wealth and uh, all of our resources, why we can't do a better job of creating uh, at least some forms of housing and and opportunities for co-living for some of these communities. And they're, you know, I was just talking, I don't know if you know Phil Payne, but there's this sure new do. organization called Lotus that they're, they're trying to migrate people from homelessness into the mainstream. And so is Shelters to Shutters, which is another organization working with homeless providers that are, trying to get people jobs in the apartment business. And so that really disturbs me. And I, and I'm, I really applaud Chris and his team at shelters and shutters and, and Phil and, and his team at Lotus that they're trying to, to not put a band aid on it, but actually to help the wound. And there are elements in, in the homes population who have mental yeah. health problems and others, and they're not easily moved into housing or into jobs or anything like that. We get that, mm-hmm. but there are a whole bunch of people who are capable of doing it. And, And it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's shameful. I'll say that again. It's
0: just shameful. Let me make a few comments about that. Just put a pin in homelessness because it's an issue that you, they all get mixed up together, right? And Uh, and affordable housing and homelessness gets mixed up together, but they're different issues. It has a whole lot to do with income inequality, has a little bit to do with housing supply. The solutions are deep and expensive, particularly around income inequality. And they're not really the issue of, your industry, they're adjacent to your industry. Although affordable housing isn't necessarily adjacent to the
1: industry. No, affordable housing really is is should be and is in the mainstream of it. But mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I, I think that what municipalities are doing though is there's you know they'll say, well, you're this rich uh, apartment owner operator, and we're you, know, you want to develop over here. Well, you're, you're going to do this. You're going to build that. You're going to do you know hold them hostage to taking care of some of the things that they should be taking care of in their municipal budgets. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, the, the affordable challenge is the other thing that, as you know, is, is just very front of mind with me. I worry that we're going to come out of this pandemic with even farther behind in trying to get enough units of housing out there for people. And we need to have a Marshall plan for housing to really tackle it. And, and uh, you can't, piecemeal it. You can't say, well, we're, you know, we'll develop five or 10% more units each year. You, you're never going to get there. If you can't build new rehab and preserve, if you can't get more subsidy uh, dollars to the people who need it, if you can't break down some of the regulatory barriers that add up to 30, 40% of
2: right. the cost
1: of development, mm-hmm. then you're not going to solve the problem. All you're going to do, you're not, you're not even going to catch up. You're going to fall behind because we lose you know, we've talked about this with Ron Witten and other people in the business. We lose anywhere from 100 to 125, probably maybe even higher, 1,000 units a year. You know, over 50% of the stock in this country is is over 30 years old. So we, we've got an aging stock. We lose at least 100,000 a year. So even if you're delivering 320 to 350,000 a year, you're only net delivering 200 to 250,000 a year. Uh, and so you're running to try to catch up, but you never will. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to tackle this thing from a holistic perspective. And before this blankety-blank pandemic hit, right, and we still are working with the 16 or 17 other real estate trade association groups to try to, to put that master plan together that we can all just lock arms and go to Congress and say, look, this is how to solve the problem. And when you look at the money, Matt, the light program costs now. It costs closer to nine billion. It was eight billion a year, but delivering close to a hundred thousand units a year between new development and rehab—that is not even a rounding error for the for the Pentagon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you you say, okay, well, we want to double the spending on the Section Eight program. That adds twenty to thirty billion more a year. Again, that's a rounding error in the federal a rounding error in the mm-hmm. federal budget, and we can't we have to fight like heck to get even an inch in those kind of battles. And it's ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, that's another one where, you know, we're going to be working hard with our colleagues and to say, let's, let's find the concentric circles where we can find ourselves working together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because when we talk about affordable housing, not homelessness, so we now moved up the scale, I guess, to affordable and affordable has low income. And I was with someone the other day who's doing, you know, moderate income up to like 120% of median income, those people need help too. In fact, they're the people we've been talking about here who are maybe the people who are working in apartment communities and first responders and everybody else, and they can't really afford housing, at least in my state. So you go pretty far up the spectrum with the need for that kind of supply and some level of subsidy or assistance to make it work.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, and so this twelve hundred dollars per adult and five hundred additional for the for the kids it is going to people in the high cost area is just like a drop in the bucket.
2: Mm-hmm. In
1: some cases, between unemployment insurance and that direct payment, they're doing okay for now. Mm-hmm. But in those very high cost areas, uh, it's it's just it's very very tough.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, isn't the answer therefore? Rent control? Let's just, you know, tax tax the landlords and don't let them raise rents because they don't need to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the research just shows that uh, rent control, you know, the body of research that we have over the past 40 years has shown that rent control produces a whole host of new units. No.
2: <laughs>
1: and that doesn't you know what we talk about. And with great confidence is this is a wrongheaded and ultimately destructive idea because It doesn't produce a single new unit of housing. And that's what we need. Right. You talk to any economist from the far left to the far right. They will say we need more production. We need more units. You put rent control in place. You have just guaranteed you will not have another single new unit of housing Mm -hmm. in most cases, not every case, but in most cases. So it is not a panacea. It is what I called earlier a bandaid. Right. Um, The policymakers, because they have people screaming at them. The rent's too damn high. So what's the answer? We'll, we'll put rent control in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The answer is not rent control. The answer is fine. Is modernizing your regulation. It is, it is getting subsidies into the hands of people. It is allowing builders to build so they can put a product on the marketplace that is at a price point uh, they can afford.
0: Yeah, So question, I'll tie two things together that's come up in the conversation already, and it's around the word public perception. It's public perception around two words I'll use that are bad words in our language. One is fat cat landlord, which your words from before, and the other is developer who's going to make, you know, rapaciously make money developing in my community. So how do you stop? How do you change even 20% that public perception around fat cat landlord and How do you change NIMBYs to people who can understand that development has some inevitability to it, at least if they live in the city?
1: Well, let's leave the NIMBYs aside for a separate conversation, because that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. But we don't even use landlord. The only reason I've ever said landlord is that people use it in the lexicon. Right. But we always talk about owner-operators, owners. Yeah. Uh, and, And what we're working on, I think, hardest is to demonstrate to everybody that, as I said earlier, that these are mostly small business owners.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: with very, very thin margins of profitability that, and no financial resources behind them, that if they get in distress, they're going to be in real trouble. And so, you know, that's the hardly the fat cat landlord. Right. And then, but we hear, and we did some research and we found that in public perceptions in some markets where we did both qualitative and quantitative research is that the, you know, the number one perceived cause of the affordability crisis is developers, and by the way, you forgot one adjective with development, which is greedy. There, yeah,
0: I meant that word. Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we have the fat cat landlord and the greedy, rapacious uh, developer. And, <laughs> you know, and what we're doing on the development side, I mean, you know, I actually, we published a t- housing toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we had actually kind of peeled back the development process. And, I, and we've got another initiative going on that is going to do reverse engineer the development process to show where all the costs go. hmm And when you do that, you know, I think people think that developers are making 40, 50, 60% margins on what they do. And it is so ridiculous. Their cash on cash Mm -hmm. returns, you know, can be in the single digits and often are. We just have to keep working at having people understand, as I mentioned earlier, where the rent goes to that owner operator and where it goes from the owner operator on through the system Mm -hmm. and what the developer actually makes uh, you know, going at w- the wealth that people have built in this business mm-hmm. comes really from an annuity income from the owned properties that are drawing off cash returns to the owners year after year after year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this has been a great business for people with with a long term perspective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not to say that developers don't make money and then and actually can build and then merchant builders made money too in, in certain environments. But the real wealth are those where the owners have held on to those properties and they continue to perform. Yeah. And that throws off enormous wealth.
0: And most of those owners who have, are long term owners, I'll, again, this come by uh, Matt talking, but they do have a long term perspective towards the residents and tenants. They're not greedy, they don't get the last dollar. They know they're in this for the long haul, so the reputation matters.
1: Absolutely. You know, I mean, you're just going back to what Rick and Keith have done you know, down at Camden, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that is loving on your resident
2: mm-hmm.
1: and your staff too. What, they do, what they're doing is just, they're working really hard to make sure that they take proper care of their staff. And, and you mm-hmm. know, we're trying to do the same. I think everybody is. Uh, I'm chairman of a theater, regional theater group in Bethesda, and, and we're trying like heck to hold on to our senior staff um, who are so talented and they don't get paid diddly poo. Right, And so we're all struggling with that.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And Doug, it's interesting. So we're going to change the subject to start to wrap up. But I think those public perceptions around those words and those concepts, it's such a huge issue for the industry, an issue for ULI, an issue for NMHC, equal to just pure out lobbying stuff. So I hope that continues and yep. we have more success for that, which gets us to your retirement, which is about to happen. So a, a couple of comments. Maybe. It, maybe. Good luck. You have to. One day.
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, I don't use the R word Uh because I don't think I'm going to retire. I am a type a personality. I think you know that. And, um, I will do something in this field. I will do something that I've fallen in love with multifamily housing. I couldn't ask for better companies to work with better members to work with better issues to deal with better staff to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And, and, um, There are some challenges out there I think I can help and even be a freer spirit to comment on them where I can't speak my mind necessarily these days because we have to be very measured uh, Mm -hmm. with the administration with both houses of Congress and both parties. Mm -hmm. So I think I am supposed to turn over the reins of NMHC to a new CEO in January of 2021. Mm -hmm. I will then work with that individual and the staff over the course of the next several months and and supposed to step down in uh, altogether in in the end of June, 2021. Uh I don't know right now. We had a talk about it yesterday with my officers. We don't know where this is going to go and I'm not in any hurry to, I I really am doing this because I want to make way for the next generation Mm -hmm. and that's the truth. Mm -hmm. It's not because I'm bored or tired or run down or discouraged or anything like that. That is not the case. I am doing this because 20 years is a long time and I want to make way for the next generation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yet in many ways, I'm a dinosaur and with technology in <laughs> particular. You can say I'm being selfless and you know, maybe a little bit, but it is only that. It is strictly that. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with anything on health. I just have my my right knee replaced. I'm back playing tennis. I'm just feeling phenomenal, uh, aside from sitting on my butt most of the day, every day. <laughs> I, so that's, that's the truth. I mean, that's the unvarnished truth.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. And also what you've described, and I think in the, throughout this conversation, but also in the last part of the conversation, your areas of passion are those that you won't. Have to give up and may actually be freer to contribute towards uh, when someone takes the reins of this organization, but you stay a resource to the industry. And I always say to everyone, I think the R word is the booby prize because you find meaning in, in your world through the work that you do. And if you can continue it in some way, it's a blessing. Yep. So, two other questions and then the, the final one. But you've watched the political sphere for a long while here, you've been a participant in it. And I know 20 years ago, we thought it was gridlocked and the R's were pretty far from the D's and it didn't work that well. But oh, my God, it worked really well as compared to today. Yeah. yeah. Aside from the presidential election, which we could, it's a rabbit hole. But do you have any hope that we get back on track to having a functional dialogue and government in
1: this country? Well, let me let me say, existentially, I am a hopeful person, mm-hmm but practically speaking, I don't see any signs. There are these little groups that are, and they're, bless their hearts, they, they're these groups that are, they're trying to work across the aisle, but they're fairly junior members of Congress, and there's no movement in the Senate for that kind of cooperation. Yep. I can remember we did a, uh, this is a, this is a great story. I remember we did a panel discussion with Alan Simpson and Dale Bumpers. Uh-huh. Um, you know, this is, probably, I think, 12, 15 years I ago, was there,
0: right? yeah. You were there? Yeah, yeah.
1: So we did a prep call with them, and Simpson was Senator Simpson was in his kitchen with his wife, and bumpers came on the line, and, and she made a comment to Alan, and Dale said, I'll make her name up, Carol, is that you? It's Dale. Mm-hmm. And so, she, you know, he's a Democrat from mm-hmm. Arkansas. He's a Republican. Simpson's a Republican from, I forget, Idaho, or wherever the heck he was from. Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming, that's right, Wyoming. And they knew each other. They socialized in the old world. They didn't hate each other. They hadn't drawn the battle line so distinctly. Right. And I was really touched by it. Mm-hmm. you. Wouldn't have that happen today in a pipe dream. Uh, can you imagine? You know, Schumer being on the line, and uh, you know, and McConnell gets on and greets Schumer's wife over the phone, uh, or vice versa.
0: I don't want to hear what they'd say. So, absolutely not.
1: No, I don't
0: either. I'd written down Alan Simpson's name for the prep in this conversation because and maybe it was hearing him or Simpson Bowles or whatever it was, but those days are not gone. They just can't because we have to get back to business here.
1: Yeah. I that was one of the great disappointments that I had during the Obama administration, is he did not support the Simpson Bowles yep, report, which I could have done it. Would have put us on a very different plane today because what it meant was everybody in the economy everybody in society had a little bit of pain and that's what compromise is called everybody feels they've given up something yep. for the greater good yep and, and he got cowed by harry Reid and nancy pelosi and i'm sorry to mention that but that's what happened and he didn't stick by his guns with those two and it was a big disappointment
0: totally agreed So, Doug, your annual conferences, you have political leaders and you have entertainers and other business leaders who you get to interact with. You have lunch with them, you get pictures, and you have a wall of pictures, I think. But any comments or takeaways or funny stories from some of those interactions?
1: I wish I could give you one, but I can't. I'll have to tell it to you privately uh, about Jimmy Carter, from President George W. Bush, from his lips, but I will not say it over the air here.
2: <laughs> okay. But
1: um, and there's one about Clinton, but I can't tell that one either. <laughs> so I will simply say that having met George Herbert Walker Bush, Colin Powell, and Tony Blair, and oh gosh, and and you know all of them have been. It's been a fascinating experience for me, and right. some really genuinely decent, well-meaning people.
0: The last question on Leading Voices is always if you had advice for a young person getting into the real estate business, in this case, maybe getting into the multifamily business, what would that advice be?
1: Well, first of all, I would advise getting into this business. It's fascinating and endlessly fascinating. And I, I will tell you that when we talk to young people or we talk to people in the business and say, okay, okay. How many of you studied to be in real estate? Well, a few hands go up. How many of you studied to be in multifamily housing? No hands go up. And how many of you have been in multifamily housing for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and hands go up all over the place?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Once people get into this business, they never leave. Mm -hmm. They may change employers. They may change types of jobs, but they never leave because it is, number one, we are providing a shelter to the American people, which is a noble cause but also it is high finance. It is uh, challenging operations. It is now emerging technologies and all that they bring and the confluence of all that make this business so interesting. I mean, I, I told you before I fall in love with this business mm-hmm. and, and, and um, I will maintain my love affair until I, you know, move on to whatever it is I move on to. Uh, so don't be put off by the word apartment because, you know, when I was growing up, I got, if you were an apartment, you were a loser. And today, that is just not the case. Anyway, so my advice would be get in the business and enjoy it and experiment. Take different jobs. If you look at Sue Ansel, uh-huh. uh, the CEO of Gables, I mean, she's had almost every job known to to Gables. And, you know, she becomes a more effective CEO and leader because she knows every element of the business hands on. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And there's so many fun areas to explore that, that, you know, I I really encourage young people to to look at this as a career path.
0: It's interesting when I counsel young people as a recruiter, oftentimes People, and I'm trying to talk someone maybe who's 30, who's been doing acquisitions for a pension fund advisor, therefore doing acquisitions across different asset classes, different real estate food groups. And I suggest they might focus in on multifamily, say, I don't want to be limited to one property type. And my comment to everyone with that is specialization works. There's community within specialization. There's depth within specialization. There's fortunes within specialization.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. But, you know, think about this, too. If you're a resident manager of a 250-unit apartment building, Mm -hmm. you are really running a small business. You have 250 customers who are paying your rent every month to whom you're providing services. You have a staff who help you provide those services. You have financial obligations and you have merchants and vendors coming in and out. And that asset could be worth, you know, $100 or more. And someone could be a resident manager at 30 years old and you're running a 100 million enterprise with the payroll and all and all the other operating expenses of a small business. And so you can take on pretty significant responsibility at a pretty young age in this business. Um, There are lots of opportunities. It's really cool.
0: Absolutely. It is really cool. (laughs) Hey, Doug, I think we need to wrap up, but I, I want to thank you for this conversation. It's been phenomenal and we've covered the waterfront and we certainly Got into today's issues around COVID, which are really brutal. But thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Well, listen, your friendship's been really important to me over the years, and I know it will continue to be. Let's everybody stay safe.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank Take you. care. We'll talk. Bye bye.
2: Bye bye.
1: Thank
0: you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.